welcome to Martyr She Wrote. I'm Anna Clark Miller, and this is a podcast on religious trauma, so consider this your trigger warning. Let's dive into a topic that's serious as hell. All right, martyrs. Today, we have Marcus Miller, my awesome spouse, back with us, and he is going to talk with me about the signs and symptoms of religious trauma. So I I wanted to do an episode that is focused more on the educational side rather than the survivor story side, and I thought that Marcus would be a great person to discuss it with. Hey, Marcus. Hey, thanks for inviting me back. Absolutely. You're just so convenient too. <laughs> <laughs> you you know where I am most of the time. So Marcus, when I say signs and symptoms of religious trauma, what kind of comes to mind? Uh, first thing that comes to mind is just anxiety. I think that's the one that I think I've seen the most of. It's also maybe one of the most visible signs is just this fear of Am I doing enough? Am I doing the right things? Is God happy with me? Uh, Just this sort of low-grade anxiety that I think a lot of religious trauma survivors just carry around with them. Yeah, I definitely think you're right that anxiety is a huge symptom. And I think that's one of the earliest ones that most survivors tend to recognize. It's like, I'm nervous Mm -hmm. all the time, and that doesn't seem like a good thing. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So let's dig a little bit deeper though. Like, you know, anxiety is sort of like a broad category, but I think there are probably some more specific dynamics that play into that. Okay. Give me an example. So the first thing that comes to mind, and it's, it's often like the first thing that I'll talk about with my clients when they come to therapy for religious trauma is this moralizing or like binary thinking that often is sort of baked into fundamentalist belief systems. And so what I mean by moralizing or binary thinking is that like everything kind of falls into these really clear, rigid categories of good and evil and right and wrong and in the group or out of the group, you know, and it's just very like, there's not a lot of gray area. And I think that that kind of contributes to that anxiety symptom you were talking about, because it's like at any moment you're in danger of like doing the opposite of what you want to do. Yeah. And I think that's ironic because I think the goal, I think the, the thing that religious people are trying to provide with that very clear, here's the right and wrongs of life is they're trying to simplify uh, life for people. Mm-hmm. Like here it is. I'll, I can write it down. There's just one book that has all the answers and I can just clarify all of this for you. It's so simple, but the real world is so much more complicated than that. And so in order to become a fully functioning mature adult, you have to kind of outgrow that binary thinking. Yeah. When you're a kid, it makes sense. It's like, yes, hitting my brother because I want to use the toy that they're using is wrong. And it's mean. And uh, so that's not how we treat each other. Killing, lying. These are things that almost every religious system in the world acknowledges as wrong. And then you grow up and it gets like a little more nuanced, like killing is wrong, but maybe war is sometimes justified 
or killing is wrong, but in self-defense, maybe it's okay. It's just for every example, there's probably a non-example where it's like, well, in that case, it's different. Right. And I think you're right that the simplification is kind of the goal for those binary categories. But I also think that it gets really sticky when another goal of those rigid categories is to produce conformity. And so sometimes those categories are really clear, like either you're a virgin or you're not. (laughs) And that clearly is about control, not necessarily oversimplifying anything. Yeah, absolutely. And, And then we act like, you know, well, this is the way God wanted it. But then we add in a bunch of stuff that wasn't necessarily in the Bible anywhere. And it's like, this, these are just cultural things that you're trying to lump together in with your religion because you prefer it this way. Yeah. I think there's definitely some anxiety that can come from this feeling of, I'm supposed to know the really obvious answers of what's right and what's wrong. And yet in my real life, it's never that simple. And so what does that mean? Does that mean that like I'm doing it wrong? Or like that I am missing some sort of instinct that I'm apparently supposed to have that gives me these clear answers all the time. Mm -hmm. I think that's really kind of the foundation of scrupulosity, something that we talked about earlier in the podcast, which is like an OCD type of moralizing things, you know, like I have to do the right thing and I need to always be afraid that I might not be doing the right thing or that I'm going to get in trouble for something that I didn't know was wrong. All of that kind of comes from that moralization. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about right and wrong. It's so easy to be like, well, I didn't lie to anyone today and I didn't assault anyone today. And so I think I'm doing good. But then it's like, there's a lot of stuff that's a lot harder to measure, like prayer. Am I praying enough or in the right way or about the correct things? Or am I reading the Bible enough? Am I reading the right parts of the Bible? How come it's not doing something that I can tell inside of my soul Does that mean I'm doing it wrong or that the Holy Spirit isn't happy with me? It can become this very just scary place to be in when you start trying to like put right and wrong to things that you can't measure. Yeah. And so that kind of brings us to the next couple of cognitive impacts of religious trauma, which are impaired decision making and impaired critical thinking. So a lot of times these really high control belief systems are like so directive in terms of this is the right way to think, this is the right way to act. And so it makes things like decision-making really difficult, especially for somebody who's used to having maybe like a, a religious leader just hand them the quote, right answers. Yeah, like if you grow up and your your parents make every decision for you because they know the right way because they've been in the church a long time, mm-hmm. and then maybe there's a pastor that kind of is controlling and tells you what's right all the time, then you become an adult and you have to make decisions for yourself. Like, should I do this career or that career? Should I have kids and stay home with them? Or should I put them in daycare? And like a million decisions you have to make that your religious leaders shouldn't be making for you. Yeah. But you've been trained to ask them for approval. Well, and I think in order to sort of justify that amount of control over people's decision-making, I think some high control groups make a habit of over-spiritualizing things that aren't spiritual. 
you know, like the example you gave of, do I put my kids in daycare or do I stay home with them? It's like, instead of that just being a decision that you make that isn't spiritual in nature, it's just one that has pros and cons. It's easy for high control leaders to be like, no, that, that is something that God has a lot of opinions about. And like, if you do that the wrong way, then like, (laughs) you're not just going to mess up your kid, but you're like, you know, contributing to the downfall of society and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Right. It's probably a sin somehow. Oh, definitely. Uh, What about impaired critical thinking? How do you think that one shows itself? Uh, I think there's this correlation between some religious groups and like sort of a science denying worldview. Mm, So true. Like, uh, well, for some reason, my pastor always told me that the world was 10,000 years old. And these scientists are telling me that it's 4 billion years old. So obviously the church can't be wrong. So all science now is highly suspect. Right. And so that's the course where you kind of learn critical thinking skills. That's the course in school where you like learn problem solving and you like test a theory and then determine which correct answer is the most correct. So it's like, if you go into that already like suspect of that, you're not going to learn those critical thinking skills. Yeah. This is especially pronounced in people who are born and raised in high control systems, as opposed to maybe people who opt into that kind of system as an adult, because you're, you know, as you're growing up, you're learning how to think, how to, how to problem solve and how to know what questions to ask when you encounter something new. And so if a kid is raised in a system that sort of says, how dare you question the things that are being handed to you as truth, or how dare you consider the possible legitimacy of outside ideas, then that definitely robs that developing brain of the ability to think critically in so many different ways. Uh, I think we see it so much more now because of the way the internet has sort of evolved. Mm. So we have all of this misinformation and like fake news and the people who need to be thinking to themselves, like, how do I know that this story is true about some politician that I've been trained to hate? Like who might be motivated to provide me with this story that may or may not have my best life in mind You know, there's so much stuff on Facebook and Twitter that's like put out by Russian troll farms. Their whole job is to like undermine our faith and democracy (laughs) and it's working. We talk about people like stealing the election or whatever, and it's not hackers like going into our election machines and like changing votes. It's just a bunch of guys making memes on the other side of the planet and they're tricking us into undermining our own democracy. Well, but even right now you're talking about conspiracy theories. And and I know there's there's a lot of evidence for and against those theories, but even in what you're expressing, there's an element of you need to think critically about that. You know, when you're when you're accusing people on the other side of the world of having ulterior motives, you need to be willing to think through like what reasons would someone have to create that rumor to begin with, you know? And like, just like you can't assume that everybody who 
posts a tweet on Twitter has pure intentions and isn't trying to manipulate anyone. I mean, that goes both directions. Yeah. I, I used to teach a technology class to middle schoolers. And one of the like lessons that we had to do was about critical thinking and like questioning what you see online. And so I had them do an entire report around the Pacific Northwest tree octopus. And there is a lot of like really interesting biology behind the Pacific Northwest tree octopus. And they live uh, in the Redwoods up in the Seattle, Washington, Oregon area. Um, <laughs> they're, they're the only air-breathing octopus. Um, oh. And there's, lucky for me as a teacher, there's actually like a lot of websites with interesting information and stories and pictures of the tree octopus. Uh-huh. Never mind the fact that it is a completely fictitious animal. It is completely made up. Right. And the point of the lesson was like, you found a lot of uh, resources confirming the things you wanted to find to write this research paper about the tree octopus that doesn't exist. So like, just because there's a website about it does not mean that it is a real thing. Yeah. Just because you can Google it and get some hits doesn't make it true. (laughs) No. Okay. So let's talk about some of the other cognitive and emotional impacts of religious trauma. Impaired emotional expression is a big one. And that's, that's a pretty general thing, but you know, the, the main way you can think of that one is sort of suppressing your own authentic emotions and invalidating the ones that don't go along with the group message and then sort of exaggerating the ones that do. Does that sound familiar to you at all, Marcus? Like, have you seen that play out in your life? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of this in my own family from growing up where there are emotions that are good, like happiness and joy and laughter. Uh, and there are emotions that are bad, like sadness or anger or frustration or stress. Mm-hmm. And I really grew up with that sort of idea of like, I'm good with interacting with my family as long as I just have these sort of positive emotions, the ones that I have been taught that are good but it's really not good for me to be sad or angry about something. Mm. And I was a one of those hormonal teenagers who would get sad and angry. And it caused a lot of conflict in my home because I was like so angry and I had no conceptualization of how to process anger or when is anger appropriate because we just kind of like swept it under the rug. It's funny that you say you were one of those hormonal teenagers who experienced anger, but like, that's just every single human being, teenager or not, hormonal or not. Yeah. (laughs) Like we just are emotional beings and it's so damaging. I think when we try to force people to not experience one particular type of just the natural emotions that we have. Yeah, there's an element of emotional literacy that I didn't learn about until an adult. I mean, I think you were getting your master's in counseling and like teaching me about emotional literacy and like what are all the different emotions and sort of flavors of these different emotions and why do we experience them? And, you know, every emotion gives us energy to do something. And I learned that in my 30s, like that's the kind of thing I probably should have learned when I was eight. Yeah. Well, and if you think about emotional suppression from a control standpoint, there is, I think, motivation 
on the part of the leaders to encourage that suppression of things like anger or, you know, expressing sadness or depression, because that reinforces control. You know, like if you have angry members speaking up and saying that they feel like they've been mistreated, that's not going to help uh, maintain control. And so it it is rather convenient, I think, to villainize any expression of anger because that makes for a nice compliant group. Well, and they have a lot of talking about forgiveness. I remember being in a situation like right after we got married where we felt like my old pastor had done something that was wrong and had again violated our trust. Yeah. And we confronted him about it and instead of apologizing, instead of, you know, acknowledging uh, any part he had to play, he went straight to quoting scriptures about forgiveness and, you know, forgive seven times, 77 times. Mm -hmm. It's such an easy way to be like, you know what, skip all these bad emotions I don't like. I need you jumped straight to where you aren't mad at me anymore. Yeah. I remember him being like, I really am sensing that you're holding on to some bitterness towards me and it's really important that you let go of that. And I remember being like, okay, (laughs) that sure would be convenient for you. But like, it just didn't seem like he had offered a sincere apology or like if he had, he just wanted us to like immediately accept it and move on. And it's like, hey, that's not how it works when you're dealing with autonomous human beings. Mm -hmm. You don't get to just tell us to quit being hurt. Yeah. And he was right that like bitterness isn't something that people should hold on to, but you can't just jump straight to the end of the story. Like there's a process to forgiveness and reconciliation and you can't just skip to the end. Yeah. And especially when you're the one who did the harm, it just is really weird to be told, hey, you need to get over the stuff that you're upset with me about. (laughs) It just feels really controlling. Okay, so let's talk about some other cognitive or emotional impacts. One that I see a lot and kind of in various expressions of this, so it can look really different, but the the foundation is the same. It's the avoidance of pleasure. Mm Mm-hmm. Obviously, like purity culture can be part of that of like villainizing, you know, the experience of sexual pleasure, but also just enjoying material things can be really villainized, especially among groups that emphasize like giving up all your possessions and like trusting God's provision. There's almost like an implicit shame associated with enjoying something or with feeling good and not feeling guilty at all. Yeah, you don't see this in every church. You don't see it in every group, but there's a few where they really shame you for joy. And it's like, oh, you know, you're having a lot of fun doing that thing, but (laughs) now you're turning that into an idol. And I think you might be worshiping that thing. And shouldn't you spend that time praying instead or studying the Bible? Yeah. And I think what that does is sort of this, when you get that message often enough, it creates this weird like pathway in your brain where anytime you experience that burst of dopamine for like, Ooh, I enjoyed that. You immediately follow it up with, Oh no, I enjoyed that. 
that seems like it could be dangerous. Am I worshiping it? Did I turn it into an idol? Should I be praying instead? Right. Like, is this a temptation or something? And if you allow that pathway to repeat itself often enough, you've created a lifestyle where you have no joy. Yeah. It's literally a recipe for depression. Like depression is the experience of apathy instead of enjoyment. And so like, if you are in a belief system that encourages you to squash enjoyment, anytime it shows up, guess what? You're going to be depressed. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about anxiety. You mentioned that earlier, but let's talk about like the specific forms of anxiety that are common among religious trauma survivors. What do you think are some of the most common ones? I feel like the supernatural elements of religion are a great source of anxiety because you've got this invisible God that may or may not be mad at you on a pretty regular basis or unhappy with the decisions you're making. Mm -hmm. He might think that you're doing a sin and you're not aware of. And then you add to that, that there's also this devil that's like actively trying to destroy your soul. And he has an army of demons that are prowling the world and they're invisible, but they're everywhere. Right. Spiritual boogeyman. And it's like, we teach children this mythology and teach them that there's devils and demons and angels and they're all around you watching and judging. That is not healthy. It's not a healthy way to exist. You're talking kind of about the the mysticism and superstition that comes along with some of those teachings. And I think not every religious leader is trying to make it into like a a boogeyman where it's like, oh, you know, Satan's going to get you. I mean, sometimes that's that's kind of the tone that it takes, but not always. But I think you're right that like when you teach those kinds of things to kids, especially kids who are not yet in the stage of brain development where they can separate metaphor from concrete reality, that can be absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Well, and then you add to that the whole like eternal life thing. Yes. Where it's like, I need to make sure that I'm going to heaven. I need to make sure that everyone I like or love is going to heaven with me. Mm. And the world is full of people who are doomed to go to hell. And you just have to carry that around with you every day and like go to the bank and vacuum your floor knowing that this eternal punishment is happening to everyone around you. Yeah. I feel like that eternal consequences theology definitely adds to a sense of responsibility that can be really debilitating. Because it's like, if every single moment is an opportunity to either, you know, further the kingdom, or I could waste it and someone's going to go to hell, there is so much pressure with that. It makes it really hard to relax or rest because it's like, there's always something I could be doing that might have eternal implications. Yeah. If I'm not witnessing to this person, am I at least praying for them on a regular basis? How often am I praying for them? Mm -hmm. Is it enough? Is my quantity of prayer going to be the difference between this person living forever in paradise or burning forever in hell? Ugh. Yeah. Okay. So those are some of the cognitive and emotional impacts, but let's talk about some of the 
more behavioral and physical impacts with your body or with the way that you are just functioning day to day. A big one that I hear a lot of folks talk about, but sometimes they don't necessarily know the right word to use is dissociation. Marcus, tell me what your understanding of dissociation is. I feel like it's almost this thing where I turn off my brain and like almost specifically like my brain's connection to my body. Mm. You're almost like unconscious of yourself. Mm. How close am I? Yeah, that is one very prevalent form of dissociation, not connecting with my body. But it's also possible to disconnect your thinking from your feelings. You know, even just in an emotional sense, there are a lot of times when we'll be thinking about something really uncomfortable, really scary, or really um, shame-provoking. And it's easy to sort of go to this place of, I'm just not going to think about that. Right. I'm just going to suspend that uncomfortable part so that I can continue getting through the day. Well, I think it makes sense that you would dissociate if you have all the anxieties we just talked about earlier, then you have to dissociate in order to like interact with your coworkers who are going to hell. You have to just turn off that part of your brain that is aware of that and just pretend like that's not the reality that you live in so you can get through a 40 hour work week. Right. And so the impact of habitual dissociation is there are several things like you can feel a lot of emotional numbness, sort of like I'm just going through my life on autopilot and I'm not really feeling invested or connected to anything. That can be one impaired memory can be another symptom. If like you just kind of are in this fog for long periods of time, that might be a sign of dissociating. Other things could be like impaired empathy. If you're in a situation where it's not safe to access your emotions, that doesn't mean you're just not accessing the scary ones. You're also not accessing the really useful pro-social ones like empathy or guilt or noticing what it is that you need. And so a lot of things can get neglected when dissociating becomes a habit. It's crazy to me because there's some practices that people can do that are basically the opposite of dissociation. So like forms of meditation, different types of yoga, breathing exercises. These are all practices that help you associate, like yeah. connect yourself to your body and be present in the moment and like reflect on how you're feeling and thinking. Yeah. And we villainize these practices in a lot of religious communities because we almost don't want people to associate too much because if they think too much about how they're feeling, it might have them asking questions that we don't want them asking. Right. When you integrate your emotional and cognitive and physical experiences, and you're kind of like listening to all of those at the same time, that is when we start to notice incongruence. You know, like I believe this one thing, but then my body's experience is totally different. And that's uncomfortable that those don't match up, you know, and, and I think you're right that by sort of villainizing the practice of mindfulness or of mind body connection inadvertently, or maybe advertently, 
we are making it harder to notice when there is incongruence that needs to be addressed. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's talk about self-neglect because functionally, this is something that I think happens a lot in high control groups. If you do any research on cults, a big thing that you'll see is a pattern of like people starving themselves or people being sleep deprived or forcing themselves to live in really bad living conditions for the sake of the belief system. Can you think of anything maybe less extreme that would fall into that self-neglect category? Well, I think it's, there's a connection there with the eternal thinking, mm -hmm. you know, if, if we're going to live forever in spirit, then my body that might last 80, 90 years is just really not very important. So things like going to the doctor or exercising or just like basic self-care seem silly in light of a billion, million eternal years. Yeah. And so I think I know religious people who are not doing a good job of caring for their own body because they kind of don't see the point. Yeah. And I think that extends beyond just their physical body needs, but also their emotional needs. It's like, why would I worry about setting boundaries to protect my emotional well-being? You know, if I need to be thinking in terms of the eternal, it kind of like just devalues any sort of self-care. Yeah. Well, we talk a lot in religion about being selfish. Are you being selfish with your time? Are you being selfish with your money? Mm. But selfishness and being focused on others is about finding balance. You need to be a little selfish enough to take care of yourself. And then you need to be a little other focused to take care of those around you and those that you work with and those that you love. So when we do the binary thinking that there's right and wrong, mm -hmm. we end up on the wrong side of what really should be something that you're keeping in balance. To reframe that, since that right and wrong language can be such a source of confusion, I prefer to call it helpful or unhelpful, mm -hmm. you know? So like using the word selfish is not helpful you know, in my opinion. So it's, it's more like, am I adequately taking care of myself and how can I get closer to a healthy balance of caring for myself and other people rather than putting it into a rigid category of this is selfish or this is sacrificial. There's a connection there with vanity too. There's a lot of mm. language about how selfish it is to be vain. And there's definitely some truth to that. So it's not like they're totally wrong. If you're constantly looking in the mirror and checking your makeup and doing your hair and like doing uh, curls to make sure you've got bulging biceps, yeah, that can be a little out of balance. But when we go to the other side and teach people almost inadvertently to neglect themselves, mm -hmm. they start to dislike themselves, but it's okay to take care of your physical appearance. And you're right that it's a balance because I do know some high control groups that focus too much on appearance, you know, where it's like women have to have their hair styled a certain way and they have to like keep that ass tight because that's <laughs> how they're going to keep their husband. You know, I mean, like all of these things can 
become toxic if you bring it to an extreme. So it, it, it is just so important, I think, to find a balance and to be connected with your body so that if it is harming you, you'll notice. Yeah. So let's talk about somatic symptoms. Once again, Marcus, I'm going to throw you under the bus. Tell me, tell me what your understanding is of somatization. Um, <laughs> so somatic symptoms are, uh, I feel like it's the kind of things that you associate with. So I'm always exhausted or I'm always there. Mm. I'm always in pain. I have chronic pain or I don't feel good. And there's not really a clear reason for why, but it's long lasting. So you're, you're right in part, but I think it can be broader than that. You know, a lot of people who, who meet the criteria for like complex PTSD or just regular PTSD have a lot of unexplained health problems that could be anything from heart palpitations to, uh, extreme insomnia to migraines or fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome. It's just anything that falls in the category of physical signs of psychological distress. And this can be a tricky one because sometimes people who are having somatic symptoms, if a doctor says that to them, they feel really invalidated because what it sounds like is they're being told, oh, it's all in your head. But right. that actually is not the point at all. The point is that your body literally took some a, a really excruciating psychological experience and turned it into a very real, very legitimate physical experience. And a lot of times that happens because the psychological aspects haven't been recognized. We're really inconsistent on like, acknowledging the reality of that because everybody knows that if you're stressed you're gonna get like indigestion or like your eyes gonna twitch <laughs> that's what happens to me when I'm stressed my eye starts twitching and that's like the first time I know that I'm stressed I'm like oh my eyes twitching uh -huh. I probably need to like take a vacation or like something totally so like most people in the world know about this mind-body connection and then but we don't realize how far reaching it can be that like somebody who grew up in a traumatic situation might have chronic pain. A soldier coming back from years on the battlefield with PTSD is going to have nightmares and fatigue and all of these other physical symptoms. And a doctor can't fix it with a pill because it's a psychological issue that needs psychological supports. Well, and maybe there are still physical medical interventions that can help, you know, like if you have severe insomnia, please go to a sleep specialist and get some medical help with that. Like you don't need to ignore it or invalidate it. However, addressing the psychological aspects can help relieve both sides of it, the psychological and the physical. Yeah. I remember like when I was getting my master's in counseling and we were talking about cultural competency, they talked about when you're working with someone who is from a culture where psychological ideas are not accepted, a lot of times you will see people coming in complaining of physical things like stomach aches or headaches or joint pain. And you want to kind of meet them where they're at and 
call it a headache. You know, a headache is a headache. It's still a legitimate symptom. I don't have to be like, no, that's depression. Stop lying to yourself, you know? <laughs> but I think that is true of religious trauma survivors too, that maybe we have made it so unacceptable to talk about our emotional discomfort that we kind of have to talk about it in terms of physical symptoms. And that's okay. I remember when I was at Bible college uh, studying different uh, ideas of what humans are. And there's like monism, dualism, and triism. And so uh, dualism is, I think, what most Christians tend to fall into. We have a body and we have a soul that is eternal and immaterial. But there's also religious expressions, uh, even within Christianity, that are, are monism, like your body and your soul. It's the same thing. You're just one thing. You're just a brain and a body and that that is who and what you are. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that most Christians today are dualists, they don't do a good job of integrating and, and seeing the connection between like things that are going on in my brain or soul are going to have an impact on my body because it's all connected. Yeah, it's inseparable. Yeah. So the other big dysfunction that often comes from religious trauma is sexual dysfunction. So obviously this can present itself in several different ways, but it, it all kind of springs from the same source, which is shame regarding sex or sexuality. And so Whenever you tell somebody that thinking about sex or doing anything sexual is wicked or sinful or selfish, of course, that's going to create dysfunction. And so what are some of the ways that that impacts somebody's sexual functioning? So I went to one of those Christian summer camps when I was growing up every single summer. Of course. And every summer there would be a, basically the purity culture night and they would separate the guys and girls, obviously, because you can't be together. Right. And they would say some really unhelpful things to the girls. But then to the guys, I was told on this like regular basis, you know, sex is terrible and deep inside of you is this monstrous <laughs> sex monster that is just ravenous and cannot be controlled and you need to fear oh it you should hate it and if a man even looks at a woman with lust in his heart he's already committed adultery <laughs> in his heart jesus said that and so so i got that every summer and then in youth group and church on a at least two or three times a year you know inevitably there'd be the sex day when you talk about sex again and so i grew up terrified mm. of my own sexuality and any sexual desire and any sexual urges, I had to like squash those down because it was sin and I didn't want to be a sinner. And then, you know, we get married and all of a sudden it's like, okay, sex is good again now. It's okay. Yeah. And it's like, it's not a switch you can just flip like that because, you know, I, if I just spent 20 years of my life, like obsessing over how scary and bad and evil and sinful all of my sexual desires are, I can't just be like, all right, now let's do it. Now it's good again. And not only does that get in the way of like, just enjoying sex, but also like being able to communicate about it with your partner in a 
productive way. You know, like if you've never been told that it's okay to notice what you like and what you enjoy or what you don't like and what you don't enjoy, then like, it's really hard to then have a safe and enjoyable sexual relationship in marriage or out, you know, like it just is a major block to our functioning as human beings. Yeah, absolutely. It's the kind of thing that I'm still unraveling and I like think I've unraveled a lot. And then (laughs) another five years will go by and I'd be like, oh man, I unraveled a lot in the last five years from that nonsense. Yeah, for sure. Um, By the way, if any of our listeners are struggling with that particular issue, I'd encourage you to read Pure by Linda K. Klein. It's a, a great book on the impacts of purity culture, particularly on women who grew up in evangelical systems. Men, don't be afraid to read it because I also read it because Anna and I listened to it on an audiobook on a road trip one time and I got a lot <laughs> out of it too. So yeah, don't hesitate because I don't think there's one specifically for men, but you should read it. Yeah. All right. And then the last category of signs and symptoms of religious trauma that I wanted to focus on today are the social and self-efficacy impacts. So what I mean by that are the ways that we relate with other people and the ways that we relate with ourselves. Marcus, what what comes to mind first when you think of social and self-efficacy impacts? I immediately think of sin nature and that, Mm. you know, we are uh, sinful creatures corrupted by sin. What's the Calvinist term? I I normally remember Uh, this. Total depravity. Total depravity. We are totally <laughs> depraved is how we're raised to believe, to think about ourselves. Yeah. And we get that message over and over, you know, every Sunday and then every Wednesday night, if you're really dedicated, um, if you're not too depraved, you'll go on Wednesdays too. And that is how we are taught to think about who human beings are. And so there's a lot of self-hatred that's going to come out of that. If you just honestly believe that you're depraved and that every other person around you is depraved, that's a very sad way of looking at humanity. Yeah. Yeah. I think the implications as far as how you see yourself, they show themselves in the form of shame. That sense that I am inadequate, I'm bad, Mm -hmm. I'm not good enough. I don't deserve love on my own. Just that type of belief, even aside from whatever the theological doctrine is, that really, I think, damages our ability to thrive and like who we are. Yeah. And I don't think it always happens to everyone. I think there are people who can grow up in the church and learn about total depravity, but then hear the message that like, but it's okay because God loves you and Jesus saved you. And now you don't have to worry about that anymore. And they're like, okay, good. And then they don't worry about it anymore. And there's other people who take those messages really to heart and like think about them a lot. And it causes dysfunction and a lot of self-loathing. Yeah. You know, even if maybe somebody grew up in a religious group that didn't talk about their total depravity, if there are really strict expectations about how they will behave, then inevitably that leads to shame anyways, because we're imperfect, you know, like at the end of the day, we're still just humans who can have great intentions, but will still make mistakes. 
And if the teachings say you shouldn't be making these mistakes, then it's setting people up to really dislike or hate themselves for not being able to like meet that standard. If mistakes are just mistakes and it's like, hey, it's okay, you're human, everybody makes mistakes, you've apologized and I forgive you, that's functional. If mistakes are sin and it's a sign that some of your depravity is leaking out again, <laughs> like, and that the Holy Spirit, didn't the Holy Spirit tell you that was a sin before you did that? Uh-oh, maybe you didn't pray enough. Maybe you should fast about it. Maybe like, you're not saved. Maybe you're not really saved. When's the last time you asked Jesus into your heart? Was it six times when you were a kid, like back to back <laughs> because you weren't sure if it took? Well, maybe you should try again. Mm -hmm. So in addition to just general shame, let's talk about identity suppression. This is a big one among the LGBTQ community, but I think it also applies to cis and hetero members as well. How do you think identity gets suppressed in high control? <laughs> I have that tattoo on my wrist that is uh, John 3.30. It says, uh, he must increase, God must increase, I must decrease. It's this idea of like, I need to be as like small and humble and insignificant as I can possibly be. Because if I was to draw attention away from God or try to take some glory for myself, then that would be sinful. Yeah. And so there's a, a squashing of identity that comes along with that idea that like anything that you do that's about yourself or self-aggrandizing or prideful is somehow bad. Yeah. You know, just understanding who you are is so difficult when you're in a system that tells you that thinking about yourself is prideful. Yeah. That there are so many practical parts of life, like figuring out what kind of job you want to do and figuring out who you want to marry or if you, if you want to marry or, you know, if you're straight or if you're bisexual or if you're gay, these are all things that you have to to look inward in order to figure them out. Mm -hmm. And so if, if you are in a system that says, how dare you look inward, you should be getting your instructions on how to identify from the scriptures or, or whatever your group standard is, then basically it's saying you don't get to look inward and decide who you are. You need to base who you are on what the group tells you. Yeah. And you use the word pride. I think that's a good one. There's an Avid Brothers song that has a lyric that says, I want to have pride like my mama had, not like the kind in the Bible that turns you bad. And it's like this word pride has these two different meanings. We have like good proud, like I'm proud of you and I'm proud of myself and, you know, pride parades and pride month and all of these things where pride is good. And then we have other examples. Of course, everyone knows people who are mm -hmm. prideful and self-focused and arrogant or narcissistic. But it's that balance again. It's not going to be an either or. So true. Okay, let's talk about external locus of control. So for those who aren't familiar with this concept, uh, it's, a, it's a psychological framework for thinking about how much ownership and agency somebody has in their own life. So if somebody has a high internal locus of control, that means that they feel really empowered and motivated, and they feel like they have the ability to make choices and sort of direct 
the way that their life goes. But if somebody has an external locus of control, that means that they sort of feel like they're at the mercy of things that are going on outside of them. And therefore, they don't really have much power over what happens in their life. And so, Marcus, how do you think high control religion would cause somebody to have a external locus of control? There's a whole doctrine in some Christian circles called predestination, and it's that everything has been mapped out. God has a blueprint for how the world is going to, how history is going to shape out. And if you take that idea to the extreme, and some people, of course, have, because anything that could be taken to the extreme should be taken to the extreme, <laughs> you now, like, what you have for breakfast this morning was predestined, and who you were going to marry was predestined, and who isn't isn't going to go to hell or uh, go to heaven is predestined. That is an external locus of control. Everything's out of your control, if that's your worldview. Right. And even, I think, if you don't necessarily believe that everything is predestined in the sense that like it's already been determined, even if you just believe that God has a plan and is the one making things happen, you just don't really have any responsibility in that mix. It's just like, you just have to be compliant enough to let God have his way. And so you don't need to like bother yourself with thinking about the implications of your decisions or taking responsibility when you make mistakes, you know, because instead it's like, well, it must've been part of God's plan. So I could just move on and, and not worry about that. You can see this in people's finances sometimes. It's like, well, God will provide. And it's like, well, yeah, maybe, but also you should probably like have a budget and like, you know, <laughs> yeah. take care of how much money you're spending on like rent and food and stuff. Like you can't just like let that all be predestined or controlled by God because you control it. Right. Or like saying, you know, I am going to go do this unsafe thing for the gospel and I'm just going to trust God to protect us. Like that's what a lot of missionaries have done. And unfortunately, a lot of people have been harmed because of that external locus of control of just sort of like, you know, giving it to God and then not actually looking at what are the things that I can do to increase my safety. Well, and it's circular thinking because you can say, well, everything's up to God and I'm just going to trust God to protect me. And then if someone goes to a place and they're hurt or harmed or killed, it's, we think about it after the fact, we're like, well, it was meant to be. <laughs> oh, so dark. Yeah. So much victim blaming, I think comes from that. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the social implications. First off is enmeshment. So this is a term for relationships in which one person can't really differentiate themselves from the other person or maybe from the group. How do you think that one plays out, Marcus? Just codependency. Um, uh -huh. If you're in a really, and I think uh, smaller churches do this a lot of times because it's like, we're all a family here. If it's just, you know, a hundred of us in this church, we really can be totally interconnected and it can be like, we eat together and we are at church together all the time and your individualism just sort of bleeds away. Yeah. 
And it's not just like we do all of our activities together, but often it's we think all of the same things. We believe all of the same things. And like, I I think in a lot of religious communities, there's sort of a sense of belonging and acceptance that comes with that enmeshment that makes it really appealing. It's like, if you're part of this group, then automatically, you know exactly what to believe, you know, to make choices with all of us being involved, you know, to keep yourself in line, because we're all going to be there telling you when you've made a mistake or done something wrong. And it it gives this false sense of safety. But also it robs you of the autonomy that we need in order to make decisions in life that are actually good for us individually. Yeah. And there's so much overlap between religion and family because, you know, you're taught religion by your family. And so you can see this in family dynamics where they're very involved in everybody's lives and their decisions and sometimes even their finances. And it can become very toxic sometimes when that like family religion line gets blurred too much. Yeah, for sure. All right. So in addition to enmeshment, there's also, I think, a lot of insecure attachments that come from high control religion. And for those who are unfamiliar, there are four attachment styles. One is the secure attachment where you can have relationships with other people and you're not plagued by any anxiety about how secure your relationship with them is. But then the other three are the insecure types, which are anxious attachment, where you're constantly worried that you are going to be abandoned or rejected. And so you're really preoccupied with your relationships. Then The next one is avoidant, and that's where you don't trust other people to be there for you. And so you're avoidant of close connections with people as a way of protecting yourself. And then the last one is disorganized, which is basically a combination of anxious and avoidant. And uh, people with that style tend to kind of vacillate between being really clingy and then pushing people away because they never feel safe. And so Marcus, how do you think that one shows itself in high control religious groups? Well, I think, and I think you, you've told me in the past that these often form, they're formed by the time you're 10 years old. This is childhood development stuff. Oh yeah. And so if you're getting the message from your parents that like, we love you as long as you toe the line and don't sin and believe what we believe and agree with what we agree with, then that is going to create an anxious attachment style. Now you know that there's uh, conditions to their love for you. Mm -hmm. It's not an unconditional safe place. It's a very conditional, I better toe the line, I better do the right things, or their love doesn't necessarily have to be there. You're right that that can create an anxious attachment of, I need to be really, really focused on making sure that my behavior is what they want from me, but also it can lead a lot of people to sort of give up, you know, and be like, 
apparently I can't please you and I can't do enough to make myself acceptable. And so that group goes in the other direction and kind of says, I just don't need relationships. I just don't need closeness because that is the safer way to protect myself from being hurt and disappointed. Well, if everybody's totally depraved anyway, why would you trust yourself around a depraved person? Catherine Keller, the doctor who I had on the very first episode, she talks a lot about how in some religious groups, the deity or God sort of acts as a attachment figure. So just like your mom and your dad or other close relationships could be big factors in what makes your attachment style what it is, even your relationship with God can potentially do that. And so if you have a view of God as a parent who is neglectful, that is really going to impact how you relate, not just with God, but with everybody else. Or if you have a view of him as really flighty and sort of like changing his whims, you know, depending on the day, that's going to impact how you relate to other people. And so that's, you know, an even bigger lens to look at it through. Well, we literally call him our father who is in heaven. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) And we're taught that he is vengeful. I mean, he's sent millions of his other children to burn forever. So that's not a very safe father figure. Yeah. Well, and, and and a father figure who wants us to sacrifice ourselves or sacrifice our children to him, you know, like these are all attachment traumas. Yeah. If I knew that I had like hundreds of older brothers and sisters who my father like burned alive, I would be pretty fearful of that father. No kidding. Um, So the last of the sort of social impacts is related to authority. And, And I think that does sort of overlap with attachment styles, but specifically I'm talking about how people respond to authority figures. And so I think this one can kind of, it's sort of like a continuum and you can go either direction. So there are some people who, because of high control religious environments, they are really distrustful of authority figures. You know, it's like, you've always got these expectations for me that I can never live up to. So screw you. I don't do anything to please the authorities. Um, (laughs) So that's one direction. But then the other is, and I think the more common direction is the, the folks who end up really focused on people pleasing as a way to pacify authority figures. I think it also connects to the cognitive one we talked about earlier about decision-making is if Mm -hmm. I'm very concerned about the approval of my authority figures, whether that's a pastor or a deacon or a parent, then I am going to be very afraid of making a decision that they may or may not approve of. Yeah. And I think that anxiety too, that we talked about of just never knowing if you can trust the authorities to be consistent and to be graceful and understanding, you know, or to even use logic that you can understand, you know, like if you can't trust that basic thing about the people in charge of you, you're going to be really tense and really nervous all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So, Marcus, of all of the signs and symptoms of religious trauma that we've talked about today, which of them do you feel like has impacted you the most? Um, I think the the moralization, that the cognitive one of like there's a right and a wrong and that any decision you make could potentially be a sinful one, uh, that plagued me growing up and, and for a long time. And I'm still sort of deprogramming a lot of that. We talked about in the past, uh, the difference between deconstructing, I might be able to cognitively say, you know, I don't really believe in this anymore. But then like my reactions and my like gut instincts, yeah, that takes a lot longer to unpack than just cognitively. So moralization is a big one for me. I also think I saw a lot of self-neglect. I never got into like exercise until I started deconstructing. Cause I think I just, and it was subconscious mostly that I like, didn't believe that my body had any value. And then when I started to sort of hmm. unravel my understanding of, you know, the afterlife and my soul, I thought, oh, if this potentially might be the only body I have, I should probably be careful with it. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I, I definitely think the, for me, the dissociation and self-neglect were the two biggest ones for me. Um, and definitely a lot of somatic symptoms too. Um, and I think that speaks to sort of, you know, when, when you're dissociating long-term, your body has to figure out some kind of way to let you know that something's going wrong. And I think my body was really, really screaming for my attention for a long time. I feel a lot more healthy now that I've started listening, but I, I definitely have a ways to go. Hmm. Well, Marcus, do you have any church culture stories that might be entertaining? I remember I was kind of on the track to become a pastor or preacher or something like that. And at one point I was asked to come sort of be the assistant to my pastor who was like preparing his next big sermon series. And so it was, you know, we were reading the Bible and like talking about how he was going to preach on these different topics. And he brought with him this like huge stack of books that were sort of like, you know, short stories, kind of like chicken soup for the soul type of books. Oh no. And one of my tasks as his assistant was he would like give me a topic and then have me find a story that like went along with it. And that's when I realized that the stories that pastors tell that they're always like a character in are sometimes just made up that it's just a story they got out of the chicken soup for the soul book, but it like really says the message and it really sends the message home. So they kind of adapt it and they like use the pieces of the story that like they like Gross. and then they tell it as if it's a true story. But I realized at that point that those aren't always true stories. Oh, really taking the magic out of it there. I know. <laughs> Wait, yeah. does that count as a lie? If somebody tells I, a story and it acts like it's theirs, but it's not? I really struggled with that because I was like 14 or 15 years old. And I was like, well, what's the difference between telling a story as a preacher and telling a lie as just a regular person? And I don't know that I can mm. tell you the difference right now. Man, there's like a there's like a deep theological implication there, I think. It's true. But then here's the catch. Uh, so I do a lot of training. And at the beginning of the training, my business partner tells a story about like discipline and like diet and exercise. And it's a metaphor. 
But when I do the training by myself, mm-hmm. I have to tell that story because it's like a turning point in the training. And I tell that story as if it's my story. But the truth is, it's really just uh, my friend's story. <gasps> So I totally do it. So you're continuing the cycle. I'm continuing oh, the cycle. Disgusting. You need to be ashamed. I know <laughs> I do. I need to moralize that. <laughs> well, thanks so much for uh, being here for this episode, Marcus. I definitely want to have you back again soon. Okay, great. I'll do it. I like it. All right. Bye. Bye. Well, that's all she wrote for this episode. If you have any questions, lean not on your own understanding. Email me at Anna at EmpathyParadigm.com. Bye.